Welcome to MoFo Perspectives, a podcast by Morris and Forster, where we share the perspectives of our clients, colleagues, subject matter experts, and lawyers. Hi, everyone. I'm Aaron Kramer. I'm the president and CEO of BSR. We're a nonprofit global business network and consultancy focused on just and sustainable business. And we have partnered with Morrison Forster for a series of dialogues, the 12th of which we have today with important ESG influencers who are leading transformative change. And it's been great to partner with MoFo on this. We have, I'll do some introductions and then I'm going to hand over to our special guest host today. Our discussion will be led by MoFo partner, Jackie Liu, who's a partner in the public uh, companies consulting and compliance and corporate governance practices at MoFo. Jackie has spent 25 years as a trusted advisor to a wide range of public companies and their boards, providing them with big picture, critical value, adding strategic advice on matters related to corporate governance, ESG, DEI, and other topics. Our guest speakers today, and we're going to be talking about a subject that is on everybody's minds. This is absolutely the top subject we hear about from our 300 plus member companies is changing sets of rules about reporting and disclosure, certainly as it relates to climate, but also on a whole range of other ESG related issues. Um, our guest speakers today are fantastic. We've got two uh, leading voices on sustainability uh, and climate and other disclosures. Christina Wyatt, who is the Deputy General Counsel and Chief Sustainability Officer at Persephone, and Neil Stewart, who is the Director of Corporate Outreach at the International Sustainability Standards Board. And I had the pleasure of working with Neil when I was on the board of the Value Reporting Foundation. Christina used to work for the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, and they are doing a bit of work on climate disclosures, as I'm sure everyone knows. She served there as the Senior Counsel for Climate and ESG to the Director of the Division of Corporation Finance and led the team drafting the climate disclosure proposal for which we continue to wait. Christine has an MBA in sustainability from Yale and a law degree, a JD from the University of Colorado and a bachelor's degree from Duke, nice range of universities. Neil is the New York-based director of corporate outreach for the IFRS Foundation, which is the entity that houses the International Accounting Standards Board, as well as the International Sustainability Standards Board, which is the steward now of the SASB standards and the integrated reporting framework. Neil joined SASB in 2020, um, bringing 20, more than 25 years of experience in and around investor relations and corporate governance. He previously was at Citi. So as you can tell uh, from these introductions, we've got a wealth of experience today. So I'm now going to step aside and hand the microphone to Jackie. Thank you all for joining us. Thanks for participating. Jackie, over to you. Thank you, everybody. And thank you for joining. I'm very happy to be here today. We surely are not going to run out of things to talk about. And in fact, I fear we're going to run out of time. So we're going to dive right in. Um, I just want to note that we have a Q&A box. Um, we want this discussion to be interactive. If things come up, please feel free to put it in the chat box. And I will do my best in making sure that your questions are answered. Okay, so with that in mind, let me start with the first question to Christina. The common refrain 
I hear all the time is the climate sustainability rules are completely fragmented. It is very daunting for companies trying to figure out how to comply. So maybe it would be great if you can start us off with where are we coming from and what is the state of the play right now? Sure, I'm happy to. And uh, Jackie, Aaron, thank you so much for having me. It's really a, an honor and uh, a pleasure. And anytime I get to uh, interact with Neil, I'm always happy to as well. Fragmentation. Yes, it, it seems as though uh, we're in a very fragmented environment, but in, in point of fact, I would make the argument that in fact, the sustainability reporting landscape is actually a lot less fragmented than it had been even just a couple of years ago. Uh, at that point, before the ISSB was, was founded, we had this veritable alphabet soup that included CDP and CDSB, SASB, GRI, IIRC, and, and other, other acronyms. And now those are largely harmonized and consolidated under the ISSB, which is all to the good. We have fewer reporting frameworks to think about, and it's much clearer what the direction of travel is. And at least as a climate change disclosures, that direction of travel is fairly clearly to follow the greenhouse gas protocol and the TCFD, the Task Force on Climate Related Financial Disclosures. And the ISSB standards, the SEC proposal, the California laws that we'll talk about, the EU CSRD that we'll talk about, all of those follow these two frameworks, at least as to climate reporting. And that's good. It means that there's actually quite a bit less fragmentation than there had been uh, some years ago, uh, even only just a couple of years ago. So I think we're moving in the right direction. As to other sustainability topics, there's more work still to come on issues beyond climate change. But the fact that the ISSB exists to help to drive global standards is a gigantic step in the right direction. And the ISSB, I'm confident, will help to keep us sort of consolidated and on the right path and avoiding the fragmentation that we used to uh, suffer from. That's great to hear, right? Especially for companies that are multinational and they're trying to make sense of the state, the federal and European laws. So uh, if you think that the greenhouse emission protocol and TCFD are the foundational rules to understand, maybe you can help us and give us some overviews on what those two mean. Sure, just in a nutshell, the greenhouse gas protocol is essentially the accounting standard that defines how you account for your greenhouse gas emissions. It's the thing that created the now well-known concepts of scopes one, two, and three emissions, scope one being your direct emissions, scope two being the emissions associated with the generation of power that you might purchase for your operations, and then scope three being your full value chain emissions. All of that derives from the greenhouse gas protocol. And that's one foundational framework that is embedded within all of these different regulatory standards, laws, and regulations. The other, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, or TCFD, is a framework that helps companies to think about how they how climate related 
issues might manifest as financial risk for the company. And the TCFD framework has four foundational pillars that it draws on and that all of these different standards and regulations and laws also have incorporated. And those are governance, strategy, risk management, and metrics and targets. So we have a pretty good architecture for thinking about climate-related financial risks in the greenhouse gas protocol and the TCFD together. Sounds good. And so, Neil, I will turn to you because Casino is talking about rules that have been um, implemented. And so let's talk a little bit about the foundation that you're associated with and the rules that are um, proposed by your organization and maybe give us an overview and then also talk about what those rules mean. Good. First of all, what is the IFRS Foundation? So the foundation was formed over two decades ago to oversee the International Accounting Standards Board, or IASB, which sets the IFRS accounting standards used in uh, 144 countries around the world. One of the key things to know about the foundation is the top level of governance is a public monitoring board made up of securities regulators, including IOSCO and the SEC. So securities regulators really are, are, are behind and oversee a lot of the foundation's work. Now, just over a little, uh, just over two years ago at COP26 in Glasgow, the foundation launched a sister board to the IASB. That is the new ISSB, the International Sustainability Standards Board that Christina has, has been talking about. And th this happened after extensive consultation with the market, going out and asking, do we need a global standard for sustainability disclosure for investors? And is the IFRS Foundation the right body to create it? And so the ISSB was created to address the fragmented landscape, the alphabet soup of, of voluntary standards and frameworks that really have added uh, cost and complexity to to both companies and investors. And the, the needs this this need was growing especially acute as so many jurisdictions, including the U.S., Canada, the U.K., and Europe, started moving towards mandatory climate and other sustainability reporting. These jurisdictions needed consistent standards. So the ISSB was created to do the same for sustainability standards that the IASB did for accounting standards more than 20 years ago, backed by the G7, the G20, IOSCO, again, and the Financial Stability Board. And it's important to note that the even though we're sit under the IFRS Foundation, the ISSB standards have been created to be gap agnostic. That is, they can be used not just with the IFRS, but mm -hmm. other accounting standards, including U.S. GAAP. In June, the ISSB issued the first of these new standards, S1 and S2, laser-focused on the needs of investors. So using the same definition of financial materiality as the IFRS accounting standards, which is that information is material if it's likely to matter to investor decisions. Now, companies will find a lot to that's familiar in the standards because we are not, we didn't want to reinvent the wheel. And as Christina also described, we, we really consolidated. We took all the work that was had already been done by companies and investors, including with SASB and the TCFD, and, and consolidated. So we consolidated the, the SASB, the Value Reporting Foundation, last year, where we and we the we rely on the SASB standards for the ISSB standards. And we're, we fully incorporated the TCFD recommendations 
into our climate standard. So companies that are already reporting with SASB and the TCFD are extremely well prepared for the ISSB standard. Now, we just uh, a few of the key announcements from over the summer that give you a sense of where we're at and where we're heading to. Shortly after we released the standards, the Financial Stability Board, which had created the TCFD, announced that our standards are the culmination of the TCFD's work, and they're basically handing over the TCFD, the monitoring that the TCFD does, and the recommendations themselves, so passing the baton to the ISSB. The other key announcement was when IOSCO in July announced they'd completed their review of the standards and were endorsing the standards for use by their jurisdictions around the world. So that's the securities regulators in 130 countries around the world, 95% of the world's market cap endorsing the standards. And that is huge. The only previous time they did that was for the IFRS in 2000, again, now used in 144 countries. And then finally, just to mention that when Europe came out with their final version of the CSRD at the end of July, we were able to announce a very high degree of alignment in our climate requirements. So really reducing the complexity, the reporting burden for companies, and really emphasizing that we're getting, we're achieving the global baseline of high quality disclosure for investors that we set out to create. Okay. So Christina, let's just finish the alphabet soup. Neil mentioned uh, CSRD. So maybe you can give us a little bit of overview on CSRD, and then we can get into the states. And then Neil, I'll come back to you and ask you, why do voluntary reporting? So hold on tight on that one. But maybe, Christina, you can tell, tell us a little bit about CSRD. Sure, happy to. So the CSRD, the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive out of Europe, requires comprehensive sustainability reporting by companies. And the goal is to inform market decision-making, not only for investors, but also for consumers, employees, and civil society. It covers a very broad range of ESG topics, including climate change. And unlike the ISSB, which Neil was just talking about, it's investor focus, and the SEC, which is very much investor focused, it applies a double materiality lens. And that requires companies to consider both the financial impact of sustainability issues on their company and also the company's impact on society. So the impact on U.S. companies, the CSRD is actually expected to have a pretty significant impact on companies outside of Europe. So many U.S. companies that have European operations will have reporting obligations under the CSRD. And the CSRD is going to have pretty broad market impacts beyond Europe's borders, even for companies that aren't directly subject to the CSRD, just because uh, the CSRD includes scope three reporting. And so companies will end up being caught up in the CSRD reporting because they're in the value chain of companies that have to report their scope three emissions. It's quite broad. The estimates are that there will be some 50,000 companies in Europe that will be subject to the directive and some 10,000 companies outside of Europe that will be in scope. And the estimates are somewhere around 3,000 US companies. Um, at a super high level, the CSRD is gonna apply on a phased in basis, starting with large companies and their definitions for 
how you determine if you're a large company. And that would include European subsidiaries of US companies. And that will be the first group of companies that will have to report. And that's going to start, that reporting will start in 2026 based on 2025 numbers. And then over time, more companies will phase in, looking down to smaller and medium-sized companies that are listed on European exchanges. And then finally, U.S. companies with subsidiaries or branches that are located in Europe that meet certain size thresholds are going to have to report for the, the parent level starting in 2028. So this is, this is coming, it's going to have quite a broad impact. Okay. And so what I, when I talk to clients about CSRD, one of the things I actually say is, in many ways, CSRD is a silver lining because a lot of multinationals will be subject to CSRD as they're just considering like what to do about the SEC rules, knowing that they have to, at some point, be subject to CSRD is forcing them to get their act together, right? And think about that. Do you think that's in some ways true? Yeah, I think it is. I think there is there is a common thread that runs through the SEC proposal and California, which we'll get to the ISSB standards and the CSRD. And that all relates to climate where the SEC has put out its climate proposal. California has adopted laws related to climate. The ISSB has started with climate, but of course we'll move on to other sustainability topics. And there is a common thread as to climate reporting that runs through the CSRD, the ISSB, the SEC in California. So I think if you're looking for safe ground, if you prepare to report to the CSRD and you gather your greenhouse gas emissions and you conduct your TCFD analysis and you ready yourself for CSRD reporting, at least as to climate, you'll be in, you'll be in great shape. I think as to the other sustainability topics, Yes, the CSRD will help, but more is still to come, certainly from the ISSB that will help to define what those reporting standards will be as to topics beyond climate. Understood. Neil, Neil may want to chime in on, I hate to talk about the ISSB and not, Neil's the expert. We did one point there, the ISSB set out to do climate first, but not climate only, and even from day one. Although S2 is specific climate requirements, S1 really provides the foundation, the, the framework for companies to report on their sustainability-related risks and opportunities, whatever those might be for their business model and for their industry, and then to determine what is the material information that investors need to know about those risks and opportunities. So less companies think that they're still in a holding pattern waiting, for example, human capital or biodiversity or human rights or all cybersecurity, whatever the topic might be that affects their company, the, the framework is ready for them to start reporting from day one and including with, with reference to the SASB standards. In fact, the requirement is in the ISSB standards for companies to consider the SASB industry standards, which is a really valuable tool in, in surfacing the most, most important information for investors, the most decision-useful information, but also making it manageable, efficient for companies by having this subset of, of topics ready to go. Okay. So one thing I wanted um, the audience to take away on the CSRD, and then uh, and Neil will talk about um, the voluntary rules, is one is just because you're a U.S. company, don't think that CSRD will not apply to you. 
And then two, I think as you are thinking about the SEC rules, I think it's important to note that CSRD is double materiality, whereas based on the proposed SEC rules, it is single materiality. And maybe Christina or, or Neil, I think that's important. And I don't know if um, everyone understands the difference between single and double materiality. And maybe um, either one of you guys, would you like to explain? I'll jump in with an interesting perspective because I, I was talking to an issuer just this week who is, they're, they're doing over the next few months, they're doing their double materiality assessment for Europe. A lot of companies are currently engaged in this, right? It's particularly because so many have to actually start with the coming reporting year. So they're doing the double materiality assessment. They're assessing what is financially material and then what is material from an impact assessment point of view. Um, and what's really great is that just over the summer, Europe actually switched to using the same definition of financial materiality that we do, that the ISSB does. It's the definition from IFRS accounting standards. Again, it's what matters to investors. So by having this shared understanding of financial materiality, that double materiality assessment starts to look a lot clearer. They can do, they can assess what is financially material to investors, what is beyond that in terms of impact materiality, and they already have that that subs that the subset the as the overlap with the ISSB ready to go. So that's a just a little bit of a sense from a materiality assessment point of view what it means to do double materiality assessment. Okay. In, in the short of it, I think for most U.S. companies, they only think about the impact, right, to the company, whereas double materialities is whatever that you do impact everyone around you that do business, right? So I, I think this is a hard concept for everyone to grasp, partly because if you are under the U.S. regime, you only think about, sadly, yourself. How does, what's impact to the company? So I think that's important for companies to know that in many ways, this is coming down the pipeline, the concept of double materiality. So Neil, since let, let's park uh, California for one second, because you mentioned a lot of the benefits of understanding um, the voluntary regime. So with that in mind, maybe tell us about your thoughts on that. Like why even think with all the rules that's that the companies you know, are mandatory and they have to comply with in the various jurisdictions, Others are like S1 and S2 are voluntary. So why should company prepare for voluntary rules? Sure. And I think specifically we're thinking here of U.S. companies or other jurisdictions where it would where the ISSB standards are not moving towards being mandatory. It's important to note that the ISSB standards were created, really created, one of the, one of the biggest reasons is to help jurisdictions implement mandatory disclosure. And that's why we see a tremendous momentum around the world, especially with AI, the IOSCO endorsement. We see a lot of momentum with uh, jurisdictions moving to bring the ISSB standards into their mandatory reporting regimes. So just recently, really important announcements by Brazil, by Turkey, uh, other key jurisdictions that are on the path include UK, Japan, Canada, Australia, Singapore, Hong Kong, Mexico, and so on. So in extremely important capital markets, also extremely important U.S. trading partners, right? So that's where, that's on the, the mandatory reporting side, and the ISSB is, is, the momentum is tremendous there. But then the question becomes, so with 
if, if U.S. companies are faced with California, with whatever comes from the SEC, with Europe, why should they pay attention to the ISSB? The ISSB standards are being seen by U.S. companies and by the accounting community in the U.S. as a tool in this transition to mandatory that is coming, mandatory reporting that is coming, bringing accounting discipline to sustainability. So preparing companies for the SEC, for the CSRD, for California, for UK rules or Canadian rules, wherever, whenever, to whomever you might have to report, wherever you're scoped in to, to rules. So voluntary use of the ISSB standards is seen as a, a no regret strategy for climate and other sustainability reporting based on the TCFD. And particularly, this is true given that the ISSB is taking over from the TCFD. Um, and also the global role of the ISSB in its work on interoperability with jurisdictions around, in, in, including the U.S. So that's the number one reason for U.S. companies that are looking for, that need an internationally accepted sustainability disclosure framework that prepares you for future rules, for this transition to mandatory investor-grade statutory reporting. The ISSB standards deliver that. But secondly, it's to meet the needs of investors. So investors have long called for TCFD and SASB reporting. Now they're asking for the ISSB. This is investor-grade disclosure. It's based on financial materiality. It's industry-based. It's consistent, comparable, assurable. Then the third reason, and that's to get on the global baseline, using a single language of sustainability around the world, wherever you do business. So a, a global power adapter that reduces the complexity of data gathering, of assurance and reporting, really reducing compliance risk. So giving companies this, the same language that you can use wherever you're gathering the data and wherever you might be reporting it or using it with customers and really giving companies access to capital and access to customers as well. So those are, I think, three pretty good reasons to consider the ISSB standards is a really important tool in this transition that we're now on, bringing accounting discipline to sustainability. Okay, that makes sense. A number of companies I work with, they understand the capital markets that they need to tap, right? But then they're also worried about, like you said, Brazil, Singapore, where they may have uh, a subsidiary. And as they're looking at the rules, some of the rules don't even go to the materiality of the subsidiary, how much business they do, their touch points within the country. And a number of them are scared that they would be stuck with doing a U.S. regime, a European regime, and then all these small, smaller countries where they have a touch point through a subsidiary. And based on what you said, Neil, it sounds like if there is a no regret but regime where they understand that systems that you are outlining, they will be much ahead when these countries actually come live with the uh, with their rules? Because it's very nascent right now for a number of these countries. Is that a correct summary? Yeah, that's exactly right. What we're looking for is consistent application of the ISSB standards around the world, giving us this common language for the capital markets. And, and that becomes a, a big advantage, reducing the, the data risk that companies face as they're with, especially if they have global operations, especially if they're doing business or even selling into or buying from these countries. Okay. So let's come a little closer to home because I'm based in California. I work with a lot of companies 
that have operations in California, even if they're not headquartered in California. So Christina, I'm coming back to you. Tell me a little bit about California and maybe give us a flavor of, because California is not the only state moving in that direction as well. Sure, happy to. So this fall, Governor Newsom signed three bills into law that are, are really important and relate to climate change and I think surprised a lot of people. The, the first one was SB 253, which requires disclosure of companies' greenhouse gas emissions. There are scopes one, two, and three greenhouse gas emissions. And it applies to companies, public and private, that are US-based, that do business in California, and that have a billion dollars or more in revenue. Pretty wide ranging. The estimates are that it will apply to some 5,400 companies. So it's going to have um, a pretty broad impact. Again, it looks back to the greenhouse gas protocol, one of those two foundational frameworks to help define what needs to be disclosed. Uh, those numbers are to answer uh, the, the question in the QA. There was a question about addressing garbage in, garbage out. Uh, and uh, the question specifically is, do the rules impose obligations on companies to audit their disclosures to ensure accuracy? And California does have an assurance requirement. So initially, the um, scope one and two disclosures would be subject to uh, limited assurance and then reasonable assurance shortly thereafter. And then after a little phase in period, scope three will be subject to limited assurance. So yes, there is an assurance provision that applies to the California disclosure laws. And the SEC proposal also includes assurance over scopes one and two. So to answer that question in the chat, the, the second of the three California laws that just passed is SB 261, which is basically the TCFD piece of the equation. So it asks companies to disclose their climate-related financial risks and what they're doing about those risks. And then the third one relates to the use of carbon credits. So it requires companies that are either selling or purchasing carbon offsets in the voluntary carbon markets in California or that have made um, claims about having achieved net zero or similar claims to back up that information with information about the carbon credits that they're using and to publicly disclose information about those carbon credits. So that's just in a nutshell, those three bills have been signed into law and are coming fast down the pike. In fact, the third of those, AB 1305, will come into effect January of 2024. So it's coming fast and furious. And I think there are a lot of unknowns, right? Because they didn't specify what it means to be doing business in California. All we know is it doesn't mean that you have to be headquartered in California, right? That They were very clear on that. But what it means to do business, like what's your touch point? I think, Christina, you mentioned looking at how tax, think about it, think about how, whether or not you're qualified to do business, whether or not some of the long arm statute of the California corporations law apply, all these things, right? But there's no specific guidance. 
Right. There's a lot of speculation as to what it will mean to do business in California. And there are some touch points, as you noted, that give some indication as to what might be the rules as to what it means to do business in California. But at the end of the day, the California Air Resources Board, CARB, is going to have to adopt implementing regulations that will hopefully provide some greater clarity around some of these questions, like what it means to do business in California. Okay, so more to come for the audience. Sorry, Neil, go ahead. One one big advantage for, for preparers is that California is relying on what companies are already using or what they may have to use and depending on where they have to report. So the 261 says, as Christina said, it's basically TCFD and they've said you can file a TCFD report, you could file an ISSB report, or you could file a jurisdictionally mandated or required climate report from another country. And this would be in the case of, for example, foreign companies with US incorporated business entities that doing business in California. So this is, and, and, and also allowing for parent level report. So not just your California operations. So I think this is, this is a sign of a California really getting on the TCFD structured or a global baseline that we're working toward. And it's an, a very important economy to be getting on that global baseline. That makes sense. I think I wanted to just quickly address uh, the first question, and I know Christina is typing, um, this, uh, is responding on some other questions, but in terms of whether or not the rules impose obligations to audit the disclosure, in some ways, I feel like it's a little bit irrelevant because the market and frankly, the plaintiff's bar will speak for itself. I think as a general rule, and maybe this is my securities law background, you need to audit what you're disclosing, right? Even if the rule doesn't specifically say that, SEC has a concept of 10b-5, right? So you can't be misleading, you can't have omission. So you should always think of it from that landscape. And similarly, I totally agree with Neil that California allows you to import other reports and you can use that, but I would say don't do it blindly right? The, the legal regimes are very different. The litigiousness of the U.S. is not comparable to other countries. And so think, think about what you're reporting with the lens of someone is watching you and want to know, make sure that what you report, you can stand behind. And so for a lot of these, I think maybe not to the rigor of financial statements yet, but it should get to that rigor. Yeah, I, I would totally echo that. And also I, I would make another point, which is that regardless of the regulatory requirements, if you're making statements in a sustainability report on your website, et cetera, you're going to be subject to 10b-5 if in, in the US if you're if you're in the securities market. 10b-5 liability is not limited to information that you report in your 10K or other SEC filings. It applies to any potential securities fraud committed related to communications that you might make wherever you make them. And, and I echo that. So for a lot of public companies, I would say, don't think that whatever you put in your sustainability report, even if you don't link it to your SEC reports, or if you like whatever you say on your website, you, like a lot of companies now have a sustainability tab, all those things, you have to look at it, the disclosure with rigor. 
have a legal department look at it because it's not where, oh, if I don't file it with the SEC, um, no one is that cavalier where they say, I can say whatever I want, but it just does, does not have the rigor a lot of times as SEC reporting or other uh, regulatory reporting. And I think that's a huge mistake. Okay, so maybe this is definitely, Christina, a question for you about um, SEC comment letters on disclosures. Uh, what are the trends on the SEC uh, climate uh, disclosures and where do you think it's going to go? I think it's I think it's fairly clear as this um, question notes that the SEC seems to be looking at companies ESG information even outside of their file documents and I think it's important to keep that in mind and just to put an exclamation point on the the point that you were just making Jackie it's super important that companies scrutinize the information that they're putting in their ESG reports, on their websites, et cetera, I would put it down to information governance. If you are if you have a process for how you vet the information that you're gonna file in your 10K, for example, I would apply the same process to information that you're putting on your website or putting in your ESG report. And I'm not at the SEC, I don't know what they're going to do, but I think that it's fairly likely that regardless of the final climate rule that the examiners in the Division of Corporation Finance are likely to continue to be looking at, at ESG disclosures, both in filings and outside of filings and issuing comments like the one that's referenced here with regard to Oracle. And the comment here is basically that the SEC is had pulled Oracle's ESG disclosures and then was asking questions about whether information in the ESG report should be included in the 10K. And that strikes me as perfectly fair game. It's the kind of thing that the SEC, I think, ought to be asking questions about. And I think they're probably likely to continue to do so. Yeah, agreed. And then the other thing to keep in mind is, irrespective of if and when the SEC rules will come out, if climate or other sustainability topics are material to your business, you have to disclose it now, irrespective, irrespective of the rules coming out. The question that's asked was about Oracle. I don't know enough if material sustainability and climate is material, but for a company that's in the oil, gas, airlines, this is probably material, whether or not the SEC rules come out. And so you have to look at it with that lens as well. Okay, so I think some of the questions that we've been asking uh, about, frankly, goes to the practical. And so that's what we should turn to next is uh, maybe, Neil, we'll go with you first. Give us some idea of with all this myriad of the rules, what are your tips for compliance by companies? Sure, I think that we've been building up to this in a lot of the comments and, and thinking about the rigor that's needed now for this reporting that's intended to, it's intended for investors, it's intended to protect investors. It's it has to be, it has to be investor grade. And so I'll give you three three things, practical steps. And first would be the process, and that's the internal control, the governance, it's getting ready for assurance. And if you haven't already, a really good resource to check out is the new ICSR supplemental guidance from COSO. 
Of course, ICFR used very widely. COSO this year came out with supplemental guidance for internal control over sustainability reporting, ICSR, extremely useful in terms of the process. Secondly, the content. And again, if you haven't already, go through the this exercise that's usually called a materiality assessment. And in ISSB terms, it's first identifying the sustainability-related risks and opportunities that are inherent to your business model, that are uh, inherent to your industry, and then determining the material information to report about them to investors. And then third and last is what you need to get there. So a gap assessment. And as I said before, if you're already doing SASB and TCFD, you're well on your way. And that gap isn't so great. And what about you, Christina? What are your uh, top three tips for compliance? Yeah, probably not shockingly. They overlap a bit with Neil's. I would definitely start with governance and your data. I guess I would add to what Neil said that on, on governance, I would make sure that you have the right people at the table. So it's breaking down the silos. For many companies, this means having your legal team, your finance team, sustainability operations, procurement, and, and others, just depending on what your operations consist of. On the data piece, to gather your climate data, I work for a software company that's a climate tech company, so I'm a little bit biased. But I think that using a software tool to help to ensure that your data are complete and accurate and follow the internal controls framework that Neil mentioned, um, and particularly the new COSO guidance for internal controls over sustainability reporting. Encourage people to come and, and look at, get a free demo of Persephone, but also there are other tools out there that I would look at, like Sphera and Salesforce, Microsoft, and others have tools. I would look at them and, and see what best fits your company and, and your needs. And some things to keep in mind, at least for climate software, are to make sure that the systems that you choose support and help you document your controls over your data. So back to that controls issue, I would look for a system that is transparent and that enables you to see your calculations and show your work and look for a system that can grow with you so that it gives you the ability to calculate your data at a high level, but also to drill down to get more granular data. And then finally, to look for a system that facilitates the exchange of data up and down your value chain, because companies are connected. And that's really what Scope 3 is all about, is the connection among companies. And your software system should ease the burden of making those connections. Yeah, I would start with governance and data. Okay. And I think both of you and Neil touched on some really important things. One is, because the common refrain is, it is too expensive to comply, and two, that where is availability and the quality of data, right? And if I understand both of you correctly, in some ways, it's not that you should start with your own Excel sheet, that there are lots of softwares now out there that actually will help you, right? Manage uh, the gathering and helping you verify the data. And with the software, you can, in some ways, probably implement it across function, right? Because I think a lot of reporting, the issue is cross function. And so don't start from, in other words, don't start from scratch and look for some of the commercial resources that are coming online and are available. Another important point to add to that, Jackie, there's no doubt it all comes down to data and it comes down to the quality of the data. 
But let's also remember too that to get started here, the data doesn't have to be perfect. And the and it's real the most important thing is to get started on this journey. So uh, investors have said this for years, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And I think it still holds true, even as we get to this precipice of mandatory reporting. For example, some of the things that the ISSB has built in to the standards to do what we call you know, scaling or proportionality to help companies get started include, for example, the use of reasonable and supportable information available without undue cost or effort, and also using an approach that commensurate with available skills, capabilities, and resources. The, this language is taken directly from the IASB accounting standards, from the IFRS accounting standards, and so should be familiar and understandable to even to accountants and finance executives. The other thing, too, especially when you get into scope three emissions and you know, really acknowledging absolutely that we're, we're not yet at the, the availability or the quality of data needed. No doubt the, the software tools like Persephone, incredibly helpful and useful, but there is also the, it's important for companies to be able to use estimations, to be able to use, you know, secondary data that, it, for example, just using industry averages to to calculate, to, to use less granular data that maybe they want to get to eventually. Uh, but all of these are ways for, for companies at least to get started in identifying where are their risks upstream, downstream, is it in their products, is it in the delivery of their products, and then start to manage those risks without getting necessarily an exact perfect number to get at least get started on managing those risks and opportunities. Agreed. But I have to say, as a securities lawyer, like I agree that it doesn't have to be perfect, but just a few thoughts. One is don't bite off more than you can chew, right? So if you don't have the wherewithal to quantify all the data, think about what you must do versus it's good to have. And so don't go and have tons of quantifying data when you can't verify. That's number one. Number two, just as Neil said, figure out where the risks are in your data. Some, it's more easily verifiable and others are not. And I would say maybe prioritize if it's material, but there's a lot of risk in reporting that data, figure out the work stream that's necessary rather than look at the quantity of data. And number three, just as Neil said, I think if you're making estimations, if you're using an industry standard, I would say, make sure you actually disclose that so that people don't think that you have an exactness to your data. And I think at least the first few years of implementation, I know the investors will be forgiving. I just wanna make sure that the plaintiff's bar, who I don't think will be as forgiving, that you have something to hang your hat on in terms of this is not exact. And then, yeah. oh, sorry, go ahead. Right. No, go ahead. I, I would just, echo that and say, this is why it's so important that you use systems that enable you to show your work. Because if you're using estimates or if you're using emission factors for multiplied by actual reported data, you wanna be able to show how you derived your numbers. And then also just circling back and, and putting a finer point on something that Neil said, I, I think of it as like you start with scaffolding and that gives you a sense of where your risks are. So you have a full picture of your emissions, but some of that will be at a very high level. It may be based on industry averages. It's less burdensome 
to calculate your emissions in that way. It's perfectly acceptable within the greenhouse gas protocol. And that's a good starting point. And then over time, you can work toward getting more granular actual reported data in the areas where it makes the most sense for your business. So just as an example, if you're measuring your scope three category one, purchased goods and services, you may start with industry averages spend-based data, but over time, if there are areas of significant spend or significant risk, you may wanna drill down and get more granular information, particularly from your largest suppliers, because as you get that more granular information, you have more, you have a greater ability to actually influence your emissions. You can reduce your emissions by working with those suppliers who are themselves working to reduce their emissions. So it's a good way to, uh, it, it's a good idea to start at the macro level and then drill down where you have the greatest opportunities and put your resources into those areas that deserve them more than others. Completely agree. We are not assuming that the companies have resources to do all of this all at once. I think we got everyone really excited about software that may help them. And so in addition just to call Christina and her firm, what are the best places to start looking for software? Well, yeah, Neil, you may want to jump in, but I think looking at, and I give the, a little list of some of the things, the factors that I would consider, but I would meet with the sort of leading companies. I gave a few of them. Um, certainly, we're happy to spend time with you at, at Persephone and show you our software system. I would look for a system that enables you to track and document your controls over your data because that's going to be critical to getting assurance and it's going to be critical to defending any claims that are made or questions that you get from the SEC, et cetera. So you want to be able to document your controls. You want to have significant transparencies. For example, in the Persephone platform, you can see a ledger that shows every single transaction that contributes to your greenhouse gas emissions. You want to look for a system that gives you that level of granularity and transparency, as opposed to the opposite, which is a black box system where someone just goes off and comes up with numbers for you. You want to own that and you want to be able to see that data, use it to defend yourself and also use it for your own business management. Because at the end of the day, it's not really just about coming up with a number. It's about coming up with numbers that help inform your business decision-making and um, the, what you're telling your investors. So those are things that I would look to. Anything further to add? I, I just think that final point for, of Christina is that this is about managing to improve performance is so important not to lose sight of. And to, related to that, do people get concerned about what we sometimes call double counting? The idea is that you're going to have scope three across different companies in the same industry. And it really doesn't matter. That's not the point of this exercise at all. It's about managing your own risks and opportunities and looking for that directionality and looking for the levers that you have to, to reduce emissions. And to re ultimately, what this is about is transition risk, reduce, reducing transition risk. And, and that's also in the eyes of investors. And my tip on software is, I think software is great, but it still requires input of the data, right? And I think once you have the software, what you 
I, I find from talking to some companies is you need like a project manager and someone with some sway in the organization that can go to all the different departments who need to put in the data and get them to put in the data, right? Because I, I, what I see is exactly what, Christina, you said earlier about silos. Some organizations are very possessive of their data, right? For whatever reasons. And some, a lot of these things, they have to come together. And in addition to having the resources now available with software and some of the other commercial products, I still think you need a champion within the organization to actually cross-functionally get everything together. Totally agree. You need a champion and you need good software. And the software ideally will help you document your controls, which includes where did you get the data from? And good software like Persephone's will also help you identify where to look for that data. You're in this industry. Here are the places where you might, you're very likely to, to have activities that will contribute to your emissions and will document where you're getting that data, who inputted it, making sure that it hasn't been changed or manipulated. If you've got an approval system, who approved it? That's where software will really help, but it's a combination of software and people for sure. Okay, we have very few minutes left. Any final words, Neil? Oh, I think we've said it all. This has been such an interesting discussion. You said uh, it all. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much to to Mofo and BSR for for having me, and and I hope that the your community of listening today will will reach out to ISSB and stay in a dialogue with us. Thank you, Christina. Same here. Thank you so much for having me, and um, it's really been a pleasure. And please feel free to reach out to me and and Persephone if you'd like to talk about software. I am a huge fan of the ISSB, so, you know, hats off to Neil for the work that he's doing. And um, thank you, Jackie and Mofo. Thank you, Aaron and BSR. Really great to be here with you all. Thank you. Aaron, back to you. Great. Thank you, uh, Neil, Christina, Jackie. Great discussion. Really interesting on a topic that um, we are all working through. I think the sentiment that Things are much less fragmented than they used to be is an important message to hold on to. We have a distance to travel, but a, a ton of progress has been made. So thanks to the ISSB and to Persephone and, and so on for helping to, to make that happen. Thanks to all of you for joining us. Have great holidays. We will be back soon in the new year, early in the new year with word about our next episode. So enjoy the break. We The world will not be sustainable as of January 1st, so we will all have more work to do. But enjoy a great holiday in the meantime, and thanks for being with us today. Please make sure to subscribe to the MoFo Perspectives podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions about what you heard today or would like more information on this topic, please visit mofo.com slash podcasts. Again, that's mofo, M-O-F-O dot com slash podcasts.